Let's say a prayer. I'll say it. God, you are father and you are mother, but you are also so much more than we can imagine or label. Help us to live out our faiths with that humble reality and be with us in this small teaching moment so that we can take something with us, something that shapes us and hopefully changes us to reflect a little bit more of you in this world. Amen. Week five of Christianese. This is the last week in this series, and this series has been quick and in some ways lighthearted, but it has really reminded me personally of our reality, like where we sit here in this little community, which is most often, I think, in a place of tension, right? And it's not like we're seeking a way out of that discomfort either. If anything, week after week, we're learning how to do the hard work of hunkering down within the tension. The tension is uncertainty. The tension is questioning and wrestling. It is complicated and messy and sometimes scary and almost always exhausting stuff. And yet, I really believe this is the kind of space where we are supposed to be. I think learning how to navigate this tension is just a part of our spiritual practice. And if we're experiencing that tension, then maybe we're doing something right. So in this space, one of the things we do, which we've been talking a lot about lately, uh, is we surrender our binary ways of thinking. We admit that humanity is more complex than black and white or good or bad or either or thinking. And I think that this is my main beef with Christianese, this dualistic thinking is what we've been calling it. So if you look at our various themes over the last month, love and respect, women need love, men need respect, as if it's just that simple. Or be a Proverbs 31 woman, as if there's one formula for Proverbs 31 and one kind of woman. I'll fly away leads to escapist theology, which sustains a number of institutionalized dualistic thinking, such as racism or sexism. And speaking of calling, as if it's just a clear as day kind of thing that God reveals to you. Go back and listen to those. If you haven't, you can subscribe to our podcast. Um, But this Christianese is the epitome of dualistic thinking, and maybe that's why we've been talking about it so much lately, but we've been working hard to let go of it. And it's really, really difficult to give it up. Even when you can point it out, even when you can own up to it, it's still really, really difficult to give up that kind of thinking. And Richard Rohr says that it's because our ego's preferred way of seeing reality is dualistic thinking. So we're actually fighting against our own egos here. That could be why it's difficult. He says, this is a quote, we do need the dualistic mind to function in practical life, to do our work as a teacher or a nurse or a scientist or an engineer. It's helpful and necessary as far as it goes, but it just doesn't go 
far enough. He says, see, the dualistic mind cannot process things like infinity or mystery or God or grace or suffering or death or sexuality or love. This is why most people stumble over these issues. The dualistic mind pulls everything down into some kind of tit-for-tat system of false choices and two simple contraries, which is largely what fast food religion teaches, usually without even knowing it. He says, without the contemplative and converted mind, honest and humble perception, much religion is frankly dangerous, end quote. And religion has been and continues to be dangerous, and I think we've all seen it. A lot of us have doled out some of that harm ourselves. Many of us have been recipients of it, and one of the ways we can confront this reality and heal from it is by learning to call out the language that binds us. Because we've come to realize, praise be to God, that we're in the business of liberation. This is God's business, and we're in it. So here we are. We are sifting through our trauma, and we're getting ourselves freed. And hopefully, along the way, freeing up some other people or providing access to it anyway. So when I was a kid, I experienced a significant trauma. Uh, My parents divorced, and my mom left our home and moved out of state. And I only saw her between the ages of 10 and 21, maybe five or six times. So it was was a very traumatic event. Now, side note, I have been doing the hard and tedious work of forgiveness for like a really long time. And my mom has her own story and her own need for grace and healing and all of that stuff. But I bring this up to say that the trauma that I experienced from that caused a lot of fear and anxiety, more than I'll ever be able to verbalize, and fear and anxiety that continues to plague me to this day. I notice it all the time, and I can trace it back because of the work that I have done, self-awareness. But at the time, at 10 years old, I didn't have a lot of resources for healing. Uh, I didn't have like a therapist or a counselor, and everyone in my family was, was going through their own pain, trying to survive it. So on top of the trauma, I remember feeling incredibly lonely. And the way that I coped with it was to turn to God. So what my trauma taught me, this is looking back at the time I couldn't have verbalized it, but what it taught me was that fear was possible, that I could be permanently separated from the most trusted figure in my life. So I turned to God to cope with that, and prayer to God was my refuge, even at that young age. And honestly, this presence of God in and over my life was grace to me. It is my proof every time I'm in faith crisis that God exists because I know God was with me in those moments. I needed that, and I'm so glad I was attuned to it at a young age. So when I was 11 or 12, I began reading the Bible on my own. I decided I would read it all the way through from front to back, and I did. It took me a couple of years, but I did it. And every verse that brought me comfort I wrote down on a little slip of paper and I put it into a box that I had like decorated that said favorite spiritual nourishment or I don't know what it said. And 
a, partic a particular text from Jeremiah was extremely comforting to me in times of loneliness and fear and anxiety. And I know that this is, I'm not the only one. I know there's a reason, I printed it in the guide, by the way, if you haven't looked at it, but um, there's a reason why this verse is a memory verse for like every kid's program church in church ever. Like it's a really beautiful poem from Jeremiah chapter 17. And verses seven through eight specifically say, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear, bear fruit. This passage provided me with so much healing. What it told me was that despite all the evidence, I could be strong. I could know peace instead of pain. I could be free from fear and anxiety. And I could know abundance if I trusted in God, which I did. I put all my trust in God. This was the formula. But what came next mattered. Verse 9. The heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? You may have heard any other translation. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The heart is perverse. I read my heart. In my little 12-year-old dualistic mind, I begin to believe deep down, God good, me bad. So I spent my adolescence reeling from trauma while also drilling it into my head, your heart can't be trusted. You can't be trusted. If you feel something in your gut, it's probably wrong. Don't trust yourself, but trust God. For years, I thought that operating this way was the definition of humility. And it's only been recently that I've realized what I was doing was diminishing my own God-given spirit. So this verse played a huge part in the formation of my theology, and I think not just in my own. Several people reached out to me to say they were excited I was doing this. I don't know where they all are. <laughs> Hopefully they'll listen online. <laughs> but evangelical culture affirms this interpretation of the heart is deceitful above all things, and spiritual leaders have and continue to eat it up and use it to manipulate and control, often without realizing that's what they're doing. But I'm still trying to bounce back from that, from believing that I'm not allowed to listen to myself. I'm still learning that it's okay to trust my instincts, my abilities, my creativity. It's okay to believe that God dwells in me and then live like it. It's okay to believe that God dwells in you and then live like it. And hey, if this isn't your struggle, like kudos. You get a 12-minute nap. Congratulations. <laughs> but I needed to hear this. I need to tell myself this. And the more that I learn that it's okay to trust God in me, the more I find it necessary to reject the paradigm of the heart being deceitful and how that's used in Christian culture. 
Because if the goal is to be reconciled to God, and spoiler, I think that's the goal if you're a person of faith, right? This paradigm is unhelpful because it actually separates us from God. It creates a rift between us and God by making us distrustful of our own selves, the very place where the Spirit of God dwells. And then it goes further. It keeps splitting. It splits our bodies from our souls. Soul becomes good. Flesh becomes bad. But they are separated, out of balance, out of sync. Dualistic thinking rears its ugly head again, and this is exactly how we begin to hate our bodies. And in our society, our actions reveal that we do. We are obsessed with hating our bodies, and if not ours, then someone else's. We don't prioritize our care for them. We're constantly seeking to change them somehow. We make sex taboo as if it's some dark, dirty thing. We're preoccupied with how others identify their gender. We micromanage others' relationship preference because of hyper-attention to their sexual preference, a.k.a. what they're doing with their bodies. We don't care who they love. We just want to know how they're using their bodies. Soul good, flesh bad. And it's so easy, it's so easy to do this. This is our autopilot, our ego's preferred reality, is dualistic thinking. So, this is your weekly reminder where the real work lies. The real work is accepting complicated, messy relationships, complicated, messy faith, complicated, messy life. The real work is keeping our hearts constantly open and vulnerable, which is way more risky than the ego alternative, but much, much, much more rewarding, exponentially more rewarding. Put in the work. Make it part of your spiritual practice to recognize and let go of your dualistic thinking that would prevent you from divine encounter. Do this so that you can discover the wonderful truth that the Spirit of God is already within you, like right now. Meaning you are empowered and primed to do this complicated work, this complicated, messy relationships and faith and life. We can do this. Trust. That's the main point of that Jeremiah text anyway. Trust in God. See, I'm not even trying to throw away the passage. I like it. I believe that the text is abundant with divine truth. But remember that with this reading as a context and a story, we should always remember that when we engage scripture. So if you didn't know, I'll tell you, I did go to seminary. The backdrop of Jeremiah's preaching, a preacher and a prophet, same thing really, just kidding. I mean, not really, but... (laughs) Jeremiah is preaching here in the last years of Judah's existence as an independent political identity. So the, Babel, the, the people were exiled to Babylon, and Babylon conquered them. And so what this means is that the people were exiled from their home, and their home, their, their faith, was associated with a place, a location, And so people were feeling separated from God, and they were acting like they were separated from God. And Jeremiah is preaching to remind them of their covenant relationship with Yahweh. He's trying to say this isn't about place. You can go anywhere, and God is with you. 
And so he's using ancient proverbial wisdom to get his point across, a.k.a. it's a poem. Poems are up for interpretation, I'm just saying. What I think he's saying about the heart specifically is that there is human wisdom, sure, but there is also divine wisdom, and divine wisdom is greater, and we need it. Our hearts will reveal which of those truths we live by divine or human. I think Jeremiah is saying, fill yourself up with the divine wisdom of God. It goes with you everywhere. We understand this wisdom to be spirit. I think he's saying your heart will not betray you if you, fi- if you choose the wisdom of God. Fill yourself up with spirit and the spirit's work in your own life will be revealed by the state of your heart. Which makes me think of another Christian-y saying, be filled with the Spirit. Spirit-filled. The Spirit fills me, fills you, fills us. This is language that gets thrown around a lot. But what if being filled with the Spirit is actually a really practical suggestion? What if it simply means fill your life with God things? Things that bring about reconciliation and healing and peace. What if it means fill yourself up with things that bring you joy, things that teach you? What if it means fill yourself up with rest and Sabbath? What if being filled with the Spirit is surrender to divine wisdom over human wisdom? Free-falling into that beautiful flow toward it and not away. We've been so dualistic in how we even think about the very spirit of God, and we should know better, right? Like, it can't be measured. It can't be described. It won't be contained. It's a flow. And it makes me think of that Lydia story from today's lectionary reading from the book of Acts. Why is Lydia baptized? It wasn't to keep account on success. That's still not the purpose of baptism, by the way. It was a deeply meaningful ritual that communicated a truth words couldn't do it justice. It's as if Lydia was saying, I've been filled by God. God has filled up my life, and I see what has always been true, that the Spirit of God lives in me, my body, my heart. Let this moment be a testament to my awakened reality. This is baptism, if you ask me, by the way. Paul and his comrades traveled all the way. City after city after city are described. Their journey is mapped out in detail. Peyton read it. To discover what? I think to discover that God was already there. That the people were already capable of knowing God. That the spirit was already at work. Lydia was already a worshiper of God. It says it in the text. So they didn't create the flow. They just joined it. The baptism of Lydia was a ritual to highlight what was already true. God dwells within us, then and now. Which brings me to our gospel reading. Our gospel reading really brings this whole thing home today. It sums it all up. Everything from Jeremiah to the heart is deceitful to Paul and Lydia to being filled with the Spirit. And it actually made me laugh out loud when I read it. The theology Jesus speaks in this little snippet is so polar opposite from the dualistic thinking that we like to create in our religious context. He says, you have heard me say, I am going away and I am coming to you. 
Does no one else think that's funny? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. This little divine nugget Jesus offers is such a contradiction, but it's a fabulous reminder that we don't follow an either. We follow a both and Christ. We don't worship an either or God. We worship a both and God, always making room for abundance and then filling us up with it, the spirit of God in us. This is what God provides for us, and Jesus states it clearly when he says, peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. What is absent in peace? You might have a different answer, but for me, fear and anxiety is absent. And so what's funny is that I end up coming back to the same conclusion that my 12-year-old self came to when I read that fire prophet Jeremiah all those years ago. But this (coughs) time, excuse me, this time I come to it more whole without all the self-doubt and soul splitting. And my conclusion is this. Trust in God. No peace, no absence of fear, no absence of anxiety, no abundance. As Jesus said, peace. Let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. And hey, it's still going to be complicated. I wish I didn't have to write conclusions every week. It really messes with the whole dualistic thinking, like trying to give it up. You're still going to have to do the difficult work of learning to trust yourself, of tending to your own heart, of untangling the things of ego from the things of spirit, but surrender to that vulnerable, complicated work anyway. Trust you have an advocate given to you, for you, dwelling in you, making things like peace and abundance possible, and making you fully whole and fully alive in the process. Not because you're suddenly perfect, but because you've learned because you've finally surrendered again to that beautiful divine flow. May we all be able to let go where needed and jump in. Amen.